Nobody thought this would happen. A routine flight from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco, California would end in a tragedy that none of us can imagine, though no doubt all of us remember. You see, United 93 had been delayed 41 minutes that morning, which gave some of the passengers peace of mind because they were running late to catch this particular flight. And once United 93 took off and reached its cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, things just seemed normal for a transcontinental flight. Breakfast and coffee had been served. People began to settle into their seats for their six-hour commute. And eventually, everybody's attention turned to their books and their laptops and their magazines. Things were normal for the crew. Things were normal for the passengers. And things were normal for the air traffic controllers. But you see, the peace of this routine six-hour transcontinental flight would be short-lived because as United 93 reached its cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, three men wearing red bandanas rushed the cockpit, killed both pilots, took control of the airplane, claimed to have a bomb on board, and redirected the flight from its destination in San Francisco to Washington, D.C. Now, the intended target of this particular plane has never been fully agreed upon. The most speculated to have been aimed at either the Capitol building or the White House. Passengers began to scream and cry and beg for their lives in a scenario I don't even want to dare to imagine. And they began to take the phones out of the airplane headrest. They began to take their cell phones, other people's cell phones, to call their families one final time. One of the passengers was a man named Todd Beamer. Maybe you've heard about him. And Todd took the phone out of the airplane headrest and he called the United Airlines call center just outside Chicago, Illinois. And an operator named Lisa Jefferson picked up the phone. Todd explained to Lisa what the scenario was on the plane. And then he began to give Lisa one final message to give to his wife and children. While he's on the phone with her, and he is on the phone with her for the duration of this incident. While he's on the phone with her, he recites the Lord's Prayer with her. He recites Psalm 23 with her. Matter of fact, they do this so much that passengers standing around Todd, hearing him do this, they begin to recite the Lord's Prayer. They begin to recite Psalm 23 as their kind of last rites. You see, what Lisa didn't know was that Todd and a handful of others, I'm not sure how many others, but Todd and a handful of others had no intention of allowing the hijackers to go through with their terrible mission. Had no intention of endangering the hundreds, if not thousands of lives working in the two potentially targeted buildings. See, what Lisa didn't know was there was a plan being formed on board United 93. And the plan was this, very simply. Overtake the hijackers, retake control of the plane, and with the help of air traffic control, land it someplace safely. And the last thing recorded as being said by Todd Beamer before the plane was carried out was not said to Lisa. Lisa overheard it. Is a phrase that has become synonymous with the heroism of that day. He looked to his crew, phone in hand, and he said, let's roll. And they were successful, bitterly bitterly successful in overtaking the hijackers, albeit heavily distracting them. They were successful in diverting the plane away from the two potential targeted buildings. They were successful in saving the lives of the people in and around those two buildings. They were successful at the expense of their own lives. You see, because while they were successful in diverting the plane, the plane was brought down into a field in Pennsylvania, killing everyone on board. You see, there was a mission there was a mission to save lives. 
There was a mission to save lives in which a bunch of people who did not know each other had to come together as one. Unity was essential for the completion of this mission. Do you realize how important unity is? Most people don't. As a matter of fact, most people take a sermon on unity as an excuse to play on their phones for 30 minutes during church. Eh, I know about unity. I know you're supposed to get along with your family. You're supposed to get along with people at church. Hey, you know what? This is a sermon for new Christians anyway. I've been coming to church for 10, 20, 25 plus years. I've heard the unity stuff. I get it. I don't need to hear it. You have no idea how wrong you are. Listen, unity is not just getting along with people at church. Unity is a being of one mind and one heart for a cause. It's one thing to be of one mind and one heart. It's another to be of one mind and one heart as one for the completion of a mission. Do you realize that we Christians have a mission? And the mission is this. I'll explain it to you. We are to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's the mission. And let me tell you something, friends. It cannot be a solo effort. Why? Because it was never meant to be. Listen, Jesus gives this command. It's called the Great Commission. He gives it to his disciples right before ascending back up into heaven. He gives it to his disciples. And listen, it was never meant to stay with them. They were told to go make other disciples. Those disciples would make other disciples. They would be of one mind and one heart. It's never meant to be on the backs of just a few people. There's a mission, friends. There's a mission to save lives. There's a mission to save lives that requires us to group up with people we don't know. For one cause. As Ben said, we're in a series called This Is Us. We're talking about families. We're talking about family unity today. And we're going to talk about the importance of unity on two levels. Okay, we're going to talk about it in two ways today. First, we're going to discuss the importance of unity in our homes, in our household. Why it's important to be united as a family. Why it's important to be united. How, how we can have our family centered around Jesus Christ. Why that's important, that's the first thing we're talking about. Secondly, we're going to talk about what unites all Christ followers everywhere as individuals. The global church. What unites Christians here with Christians in Asia and Europe. What ties us all together. So unity in the household first is what we're going to talk about. Why that's important. And we're talking about these two things as they uh, adhere to the mission of Christ. Because they do. Both these things play heavily on the mission. Let's talk about unity in the household first. Now first of all, you're probably sitting there thinking, why is that important? Why is it important to be united in our house? Because typically, I do my own thing. You know, the wife, my wife does uh, her own thing. The kids do their own thing. Sometimes we meet to eat, and then we go do our own thing again. You know, why, why, why is that even important? Let me tell you why it's important. Listen to this. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this. He says, a kingdom or a house divided against itself cannot stand. Let me say that one more time. A kingdom or a house divided against itself cannot stand. Listen, families have to be centered around Jesus so families can complete the mission of Christ. You can't be grandfathered into it. Don't do this. Well, dad meets with people for coffee on Saturday mornings and talks about Jesus. So, so I guess I'm grandfathered in that way. No, it has to be a family effort. We're going to talk about two things before we talk about some tangible things. Because I'm going to give you some things you can do to ensure this family unity. Some physical things. But there's two things you've got to be making sure of first. Okay? And they're related to each other. Let's talk about the first thing. First thing is you need to be making Christ famous in your home. 
You need to make Jesus Christ famous in your house. Listen, the mission of Christ as a family only works if every member of that household is sold out and on fire for Jesus. Now, I'm not going to be unfair this morning. I'm going to be realistic. I know this is difficult. I know this is not always the case. Listen, I am well aware that not every member of every household is in love with Jesus. Matter of fact, I would wager that some of us are sitting alone in here this morning because we are wanting to you know, increase our relationship with Jesus. Someone in our house doesn't. They're not interested. But listen here. Listen to this. Don't see that as an obstacle. Don't see it as an obstacle. Well, the mission of Christ, is this unity in the family towards the mission of Christ, it's hard for me because my wife doesn't believe. My brother doesn't. My husband doesn't. Listen, don't see that as an obstacle and don't see it as an excuse. See it this way. That's your mission field. It starts there. Start sharing Christ with your spouse first. It all starts there because once you, once you two are united around Christ, then you can move on to the second part, which we'll get to in a second. It doesn't have to be anything difficult. I'm not saying sit down at your kitchen table and have a deep theological discussion with your spouse. No. If they're not into it, here's an easy in. I've found that this works. Just say, hey, and this works for anybody, by the way. Hey, can I just tell you some things God's done in my life recently? Or can I tell you about a prayer I feel like God has answered? There's a lot of avenues. People love to hear about success. When they hear what God's doing in your life, they're like, could he do it in mine? What do I mean by making Christ famous? Make talking about Jesus an event everyone looks forward to. Don't do this. Well, that's noon. I got to talk about Jesus. No. Oh, I can't do that yet. We got we to have a Bible study first. Make Jesus famous with your spouse. And then once you do that, once you're united with each other, we move on to the second thing we need to be doing. Making Christ famous in our home. Making Christ famous with our children. With your spouse, with your children. Listen, our kids land volunteers downstairs teaching right now, some of which are off duty this week and are in here, are the best. I would defend that against anybody. They are 100% the best. And they will help your child know who Jesus is. They will help your child learn how to pray. They will help your child understand the Bible, understand that God loves them, that he created them. Yes, they'll help. But listen to me. Listen to this. It's wrong. It's wrong to just let them do it. Why? We only see them an hour a week. There is no reason your child should be hearing about Jesus one hour a week. We'll plant the seed of Jesus in their heart. We'll, we'll help do that. And we'll help you in any way we can. We'll do it in a fun way. And we love your kids. But you've got to help grow the roots at home. You've got to help grow the roots at home. Don't just take them here. Okay, well, they're good. You've got to be on fire too. They've got to see it in the home too. So they know that talking about Jesus isn't limited to just Sundays. That this is a life. It affects eternity. Here's the other thing. When kids get on fire about something, you have kids, you understand. When they get pumped up about something, they don't stop talking about it. I'm getting some like, mm-hmm, yeah, heard about Power Rangers for six months. Yes. I mean, you know, they don't stop talking about it. What if? What if our children couldn't stop talking about Jesus? Could you imagine for 10 seconds what that would look like? For our kids to be on fire about Jesus. For people you have over, company you have over, to have to step out of the room for a second because they need a break. Imagine if our kids got on fire for Jesus. Now I know what you're thinking at this point. You're like, okay, um, 
Make Christ famous with my spouse. Um, make Christ famous with my children. I got that. I get kids get on fire about stuff, trust me. That's hard, right? It's hard to make Jesus famous with people. No, it isn't. Listen, you don't have to make Jesus seem awesome. He already is. Tell your spouse there's a God that loves them. Tell your kids there's a God that loves them. Tell them there is a God who died for them, who walked on water, who opened blind eyes, opened deaf ears, who raised the dead. Listen, if you can find something cooler than that, I'd love to hear about it. You don't have to make Jesus seem cool. He already is. But you do have to step out and tell them about it. Don't just limit it here. Make Christ famous with your spouse. Make Christ famous with your kids. Once you do that, you will see unity in your family that you can't explain to people except by the power of Jesus. We'll talk about a little bit more about that here in just a second. But you can't experience that unity unless you're trying these things. Because this unity is hard to explain to people. Making Christ famous with your spouse and your kids does turn results, I promise. Now you say, okay, that's great. Now what, what can I do about that? What can I do about it? We're going to talk about four things very quickly. Here we go. Number one, you need to be praying with your family. I hope you're doing that. And I hope you're doing it at times that are not just meals, though that's important. Pray with your spouse. Pray before they go to work. Pray when they come back from work. You know they're going to have a hard day. Pray with them. Pray with them just because. And then pray with your kids. My mom and I, she may or may not remember this, she would pray with me in the car on the way to school. Pray on the way to school. Pray when you come back from school. Pray before the big game. Pray before bed. Make prayer an integral part of your family. Why? Because prayer connects you deeper with your family. If you are actively now praying with your family, with your spouse, your kids, and collectively, then you know you are connected on a deeper level than can be explained. Because you're connected on a spiritual level. You're connected on a spiritual level, which is the deepest kind of connection. I'm not saying a lot about this because we're going to come back to prayer here in just a little bit. But be praying with your family. It connects you deeper. This next part has two different parts and, and it, it requires some explanation. So here's the second thing. Read scripture with your spouse. Read Bible stories with your children. So why does that need to be said? Because I don't want this to happen. Well, I read the story of Noah's Ark to my three-year-old tonight, so I got my scripture in for the day. Look, that's great. And that is an important story. We need to know about God's promises. Your children need to know about God's promises. But listen, your children need milk. You need meat. You and your spouse, you by yourself, whoever it is, need to be digging into this. Why? So you can handle the deep issues you know your child's going to face. So you can handle them biblically. Picture Bibles are written the way they are so kids can fall in love with Jesus easily. That's too easy for adults. We need, the, we need the meat. They need the milk. Now, as they grow older, fold them into your Bible study, of course. But don't teach them deep things and don't short arm yourself. Read scripture with your spouse. Read Bible stories to the kids. Here's the third thing. I got married in October. Everybody basically knows this. If you didn't know, I did get married in October. And I have friends that are not yet married uh, that are planning to get married. And I have had them ask me for, you know, marital advice. Now, there are some things I don't say. I've only been married since October. It's not fair. I don't know about that stuff. 
you know? So I don't tell them. I do give them one piece of advice, and I give it to you now, and it serves as the next point. Keep Jesus at the center of everything. Keep Jesus at the center of your marriage. Keep Jesus at the center of your family. Why? Because he is the one from whom everything flows. Everything we do in life is because of what he did for us. We are able to live because of his grace. Everything we do comes from him. And when Jesus Christ is at the center of your family, he will be the glue that unites your family together, I promise. You say, how do I do that? Well, praying and reading scripture definitely will ensure that he stays at the center. Definitely will. But you also got to do this and make this a practice. You got to point your spouse, you got to point your kids to Jesus in all scenarios. Have a good day, isn't God great? Have a bad day, God's still there. Point them to Jesus in everything. You got to point back to Jesus because he's the one from whom everything stems, he's at the center. He's at the center of everything. He will be the glue that unites your family. But it takes some effort. Which brings us to point four. And this is going to sting. Here we go. Make your plans after the first three things have happened. If you had a list of things to do. If we had a list of things you needed to do in a day, in a week, whatever. Okay. Number one would be pray with your family. Read scripture with the spouse. Bible studies to the kids. Or Bible stories to the kids. Making sure Christ is at the center of everything. Number two is everything else you got to do. These things in number one, the three things we just talked about, those are priorities. Don't fold them into your plans. Make your plans after that. Why? Because you got to get into a routine about this. Keeping Jesus at the center takes some work. you got to step out a little bit. Because I don't want this to be happening. I didn't have time to pray today. Yes, you did. Prayer, take, prayer takes 30 seconds at most. I didn't have time to read scripture today. Well, you did if you put it first. If it's priority, you had time for it. If you have the Bible app on your phone, but you're in the car, the Bible app will read the Bible to you. Make the first three things priority for your family. And when you do, you will see your family unite in ways you never could have experienced. And as a united family centered around Jesus, knowing the mission is to go and tell others about Jesus, you can reach other people in your family. Listen, you don't have to go to Africa or Asia to preach the gospel. If you do, that's great. But you as a family can preach the gospel and fulfill the mission of Christ I just talked about in your living room, at the family reunion, at your office, at your school. You don't have to travel halfway around the world to do that. But as a family, once you're centered around Christ, you know what the mission is, then you can reach your other family members who don't believe. Then you can reach people in your neighborhood. Then you can reach people in your city, in your county, maybe your state. And then we can tackle the globe for Jesus, friends. But unity is essential for this mission. Unity in the home, part one. Part two, let's talk about how we are all united as followers of Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, we're looking at verses 20 and 21. That's the only place we're going to be looking today. We're not going to flip back and forth. Okay, And I'd like to give you some background on this particular passage. John is a gospel. Okay, He's one of four gospels in the New Testament. They make up the first four books of the New Testament. What does a gospel mean? That means it is a biography of Jesus' life. There are four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is last. Doesn't mean he's any less important. Just means that's where it fell when they organized the Bible. So it's a biography of Jesus' life. At this point in Jesus' life... 
He is getting ready for the climatic element, the climax of why he came to earth. Why did he come to earth? Leaves the perfection of heaven to come and die a death that we deserve so that we can spend eternity in heaven with him. So he can close that gap that separates us from God. We'll come back to that in a second. That's getting ready to happen. Listen, John 17 is a prayer. All of John chapter 17 is one long prayer Jesus prays. Okay, This is moments, literally moments, before the climatic event. Listen, in, 17, in chapter 17, he prays. In chapter 18, he's arrested. That's how close we are here. He's arrested, handed over to the Jewish leaders who put him on trial, find him guilty, who they then hand him over to the Romans who put him on the cross. We're literally moments from that. Listen, chapter 17 ends what we like to call the upper room discourse, which sounds fancy, but it's really easy to understand. And it means this. The upper room is where Jesus and his disciples met to have sort of the first communion. They had the last supper in the upper room. We do it every single Sunday. Jesus takes his disciples and explains to them what he's about to do because they're still a little fuzzy on it at this point. They're not, not really sure what, what's getting ready to happen. He says, this is my bread. This is the bread. represents my body. Broken for you. This is the wine. Represents my blood. Poured out for the sins of many. Take these in remembrance of me. We do it every Sunday. We'll do it here in just a few moments. He does that. But before he does that, he has some other teachings. That's why this is called a discourse. So, if we go back to John chapter 13... Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Okay? In chapters 14, 15, and 16, he teaches things like, I am the vine and you are the branches, and if the world hates you, remember it first hated me, stuff like that. Then they have the Last Supper, and then he and his 11 disciples, 11, why 11 and not 12? Because where they're heading, Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. His name's Judas, and Judas leaves the Last Supper to go and get the Jewish leaders, and bring them to where Jesus is going so he can betray him for money into their hands. So Judas is out of the picture, okay, at this point. So there's 11. After they do the Last Supper, and Judas has left, okay, Jesus and his 11 disciples, they leave the upper room of the man's house, and they travel out of the city of Jerusalem down into what's called the Kidron Valley, up the other side of the mountain, which is called the Mount of Olives. In the Mount of Olives, there is a garden called Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas will, Judas will betray Jesus with a kiss. Hand him over to the Jewish leaders. It's getting ready to happen. They're walking there. And by the way, it's a straight walk. When you leave the east gate of the city of Jerusalem, you literally start downhill. And when you start up the next hill, that's the Mount of Olives. I've been there. It's literally like this. Couldn't be any more clear. Not that long of a walk. And while they're walking, Jesus stops. He stops at the entrance to the temple. They don't go in. He stands on the stairs. Listen, why do I bring this up? Because where he prays this is as important as what he's praying. Okay, Jesus is standing at the steps of the temple, their church, where for thousands upon thousands of years, human priests had ministered to the people about God. That's what had happened. Jesus stands here praying. Like I said, chapter 17 is a prayer. He stands here praying as the great high priest of heaven. It's another way to refer to Jesus. He is now standing there praying for us as the great high priest of heaven, doing what no human could ever do. And that's this. He is praying to God on behalf of man. At this moment, Jesus is praying to God on behalf of man. That's called interceding. 
It's a preview of what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a traumatic situation and you knew you needed to pray and you didn't have the words? I think we've all been there once or twice before. You know you need to pray and you're just so distraught, nothing comes out. But you find the words? That's because the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. It does two things, if we could narrow it to two. It tells you right from wrong, that's conviction, number one. Number two, it intercedes for you. That's where you find the words. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is speaking to God on behalf of man. Here's what he's doing in this moment. It's super cool. He is standing in this metaphorical gap that separates us from God. Why is there a gap? Because in Genesis chapter 3, man falls victim to sin and the world falls. The world is in a fallen state and we are separated from God because of our sin. Jesus is now standing here in this gap, getting ready to bridge that gap with what he does at the cross. There's no gap anymore. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we now are reconnected with God. That's why it's so cool. But he's standing here praying for us. And here's the cool part. In this moment, Jesus is praying for you. You ever had someone pray for you? Isn't it a great feeling if you, if you, if you had someone pray for you? You know that they're just they're talking to God when you can't, and it's just it's such a beautiful thing. Now imagine Jesus saying a prayer for you. We're talking about three things this morning. Okay, we're talking about three things that unite uh, all believers everywhere together. The first one, the first one is prayer. Would you read with me here? John chapter seventeen, starting in verse twenty. And I should warn you. We're looking at 20 and 21, and verse 20 ends in the middle of a sentence, okay? So when we pick up in verse 21, it's going to sound a little funky. Just know that Jesus is continuing what he, from what he said the last time, okay? And it's going to sound a little weird. So let's start here in verse 20. It says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now you're like, hold on, wait a second, wait. Who is them? Who is there? What's their message? Listen, his prayer is broken up into three parts in 17. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for the Father to be glorified. He prays because he's getting ready to go through the traumatic, I mean, uh, grotesqueness of the cross. Verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples because once Jesus rises from the grave, the disciples are sent out to tell other people the message of Jesus and to plant churches. You want to know what that's like? Read it in the book of Acts. It's very detailed. But in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for those who will hear the message of the disciples. That's us. So when he says, my prayer is not for them alone, he's talking about the disciples. I pray, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. What message are they talking about? What is the disciples' message? That message is the gospel. And we're getting ready to talk about that in a second. First thing that ties us all together is prayer. Prayer connects us. I said that a minute ago. Prayer draws us closer to people. Because it connects us on a spiritual level, which is more deeper than emotional or physical connection could ever make us. Listen, I have become better friends with people when I have heard how they pray. I want to make something clear. I haven't become better friends with people because they pray. I have become better friends with people because I've heard how they pray. Listen, when you hear someone speaking to God, 
When you hear someone taking their vulnerabilities and placing them at the feet of the Father and you realize that you do that too, you're already connected on a deeper level. Already way deeper connected. And it's hard to explain to people, but if you've heard how other people pray, you know this. You know this. Prayer connects us. We're all connected with prayer because uh, by and large, all Christians do offer up prayers for the most part. So prayer ties us all together because we all take our vulnerabilities before God. We're all speaking to God and it's a beautiful thing. Let's talk about the gospel. How are we tied together through the gospel? Well, we're tied together for two reasons. Number one, that's the message we're supposed to proclaim to people. Okay? When, when, we're going, when we're on this mission from Matthew 28, like I just said, the message that we're telling people when we're making disciples is the message of the gospel. Now, what is that? Here's the gospel very simply. It's the good news about Jesus. And an abridged version of the gospel goes like this. All humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are eternally separated from God because of our sin. And the only outcome for sin, the wage of sin, is death. And here's why it's called the good news. Is because God so loved us that he sent his son to die the death that we deserve so he could bridge that gap. So why are we connected through the gospel? Number one, because we're told to preach it. And number two, because we're alive today because of it. We've been saved through the gospel. What connects us? Prayer and that we're all sinners saved by grace. That's what connects us through the spreading of the gospel and because we've received the salvation through Jesus, through the message of the gospel. We're sinners saved by grace. That's how we're united, people. That's how we're united. And that's why the gospel is so important. And here's, here's how it's integral to the mission of Christ. Because when you accept Christ as your Savior, you become a Christian. You're baptized. When you do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. You have eternal life. Not only that, you hold the keys to telling someone about that eternal life. Now it comes through Jesus, but you have the opportunity to tell people how they can change their eternity. Let me ask you something that, that might sting a little bit. How bad do you have to hate someone to hold the keys, know the information to how they can change the eternity, hold the keys to eternal life through Jesus? How much do you have to hate someone to know that information and not share it? If you know how someone can change their eternity, how they can go from hell-bound to heaven-bound, if you know that, why would you not tell somebody that? We've been saved through it. Don't you want other people to experience that? United through the gospel because we've been saved by it and because we're supposed to share it through their message. Let's look at verse 21. Remember, it's in the middle of a sentence. He's continuing from what he just said. He says, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you've sent me. It's very confusing. I will be very honest with you, it is. What does it mean that we're to be one as, as God and the Father are one? Well, what, what could that possibly mean? First off, do you know how close of a connection that is? That all Christians everywhere, we are to be united. We are to be as close as God and the Father. You know how close a relationship that is? Here's how close it is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what does that mean for us? That when people, non-Christians, come in contact with us, they see a little bit 
of Christ's love. Just a little bit. And Jesus is talking about individual Christians here. He's talking about the church, but he doesn't necessarily use the word church. He doesn't give any organizational basis for this in this verse. He doesn't do that. He's talking about the unity of individual Christians in love for each other and in love for the Father. That's two things that, w- that the Bible says explicitly we are to agree upon. Love for each other and a love for the Father and that unites us through the gospel. He doesn't give organizational basis for it. He wants us to be in complete unity. The NIV says complete unity. New American Standard says perfect unity. Oh, can we ever achieve perfect unity? No, but it can set before us as a standard. Jesus was perfect. Christians are to live every single day trying to be more like Jesus to the best of their ability. Will they ever? Will we ever get there? No, but it's the standard. And the unity of God and the Father is the standard to which we should all be striving. And there's a reason for it. He doesn't just say he wants it. Jesus, he doesn't do that. He just says, I want them to be united. And leaves it. He doesn't do that. It's cause and effect. Look at verse 21 again. May they also be, he's talking about unity. May they also be in us. Look at these two, it's two words that, that, that gives it away. So that the world may believe you have sent me. We're united through prayer, we're united through the gospel, and because we're united, people are going to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I read this this week when I was preparing for this, and it doesn't make sense to me. Jesus, the way people are going to know that you're the Messiah is if we're united. The way I want the world to know that he's the Messiah is I sit down with someone who I know doesn't know Jesus, and I point things out in Scripture, pray with them, tell them maybe some prophecies that have come true. All of that is good, by the way. All of that works. But Jesus says it's our unity. Why is that even important? We can't go into the world spreading the mission of Christ and be on all these different levels. How does that make us look? We are to be one so that the world may believe. There's a mission, folks. There's a mission to save lives. There's a mission to save lives which requires all Christians everywhere from the United States to Asia to Africa to Australia to unite, people who do not know each other, to unite. And unity is essential in our households and together for the completion of this mission. You know, maybe you're here this morning and I'm talking about Christians and you're like, I'm not there. I'm just not there yet. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I know I'm part of my home family. Maybe I'm not part of the, the family of God. You know what the beautiful thing about the gospel is? We cannot save ourselves. We're separated from God. We're living a life apart from Jesus. But you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. Do you understand? You can change it right this second. If you have not made a commitment for Jesus Christ, talk to one of us. Talk to Ben. Talk to myself. We would love to talk with you about that. Because we understand about eternity. We understand where it comes from. We understand what it takes to change it. We would love to share that with you today. Find one of us. We won't do it. We're not going to embarrass you. Nothing like that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't dare do that. But if you're not part of the family of God, change that today. Be united with us. 
We're getting ready to come into a time of communion. We're getting ready to come to remember the thing that Jesus did that unites us all. We're all sinners saved by grace through his body and blood, which we come in this time to remember. Would you remain in that mindset that we are sinners saved by grace as we come into this time of communion?